I am very, very excited about tonight and um, yeah, grateful to be with all of you. I think it's gonna be really great. So um, let's see, we are in, this is part three of our series titled Epiphany, A Radical Invitation. And the idea of the season of epiphany in the church calendar is basically that it's it's just a time to reflect on who Christ was and is, who he reveals God to be, and then what our response to that revealing is. So you can see that in many ways, uh, epiphany is the perfect follow-up to the Christmas season of Advent, uh, because Advent's all about waiting, receiving something from God that we do not work for or earn. Uh, it's It's really a season of contemplation and grace, but epiphany is different. It's it's the follow-up. It's it's our response to the um, as the church to the gift of Jesus Himself. So, um, with that in mind, the title of my message tonight uh, is the wonderful, terrible grace of God. The wonderful, terrible grace of God. Uh, I think that will make more sense as we go. And our primary text is going to be from Jonah chapter three, verses one through ten. And uh, our very own Nancy Purdy, another amazing person, <laughs> will be doing our scripture reading tonight. Uh, so Nancy, you can go ahead and take it away, my friend. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites will leave God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the kings and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God might yet Relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Jonah 1 3 1 through 10. Thank you, Nancy. Beautiful. Um, so when you know when most people think of the story of Jonah, um, they they tend to think of Jonah and the what, the whale. Um, it's the whale part of the story that figures quite prominently in many of our retellings uh, of this story. And um, you know, in Sunday school, I think uh, which is kind of like you know children's church and things like that. Um, we tend to focus a lot on the whale because well you know, it's interesting and kind of strange and it lends itself to, to kind of a, a certain simplistic um, moral telling of the story that kids can kind of understand. Uh, it's, it's sort of the low hanging fruit, so to speak. Now, having said that, for those unfamiliar with the story, the passage that Nancy just read 
it actually occurs about halfway through the story. Like Jonah's not, it's not a long book, it's four chapters. And so that was the, the first part of chapter three. So it's like right there halfway. Um, so let me give you some of the background um, just to kind of refresh your, your memory or bring you in the loop if you're not familiar with Jonah. So there is this a Jewish prophet named Jonah uh, who the Lord commands to go to Nineveh, the city of Nineveh. Uh, but Jonah says, um, no. <laughs> and he jumps on a ship for the town of Tarshish, uh, which biblical commentators point out is basically a town in precisely the opposite direction of Nineveh. So he jumps on the nearest ship and heads in the opposite direction. Uh, however, during his journey, a, a storm kicks up on the sea. The sailors with Jonah, uh, they begin to freak out. They run up to him. They ask, uh, didn't you say something about running from God? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah, um, I did. I mentioned, mentioned that. It's unfortunate you remember that. So Jonah basically says, I mean, he's very compassionate. He's like, look, throw me overboard is my fault. Uh, and they protest because they're like, oh my gosh, your blood will be on our hands. We can't do this. But eventually the storm's so bad they do. Um, the storm, it begins to kind of ease, but then a whale, uh, once they throw him overboard, but then a whale from the deep swallows Jonah up and he proceeds to sit in the belly of that great beast for three days and three nights. And as the story goes, he prays to God at, towards the end of that time. And he says, Okay, I relent. I, I will obey. Uh, and then the whale vomits him up onto dry land. And then that brings us up to chapter three, where God says, okay, Jonah, go. Um, so, so you can see how we might teach this to, to you know, children. Um, when God tells us to do something, the moral of the story goes, we must obey God. We must not run away from the will of God. We need to obey. Uh, and I think that's a great truth from the, the book of Jonah. Um, but I, I do think there's more going on in, in the text and that that can be a little bit uh, simplistic. Um, so, but then even as adults, honestly, we kind of, it's easy to miss it because um, we still end up circling kind of our own telling of the story around the whale, the whale part of the story, because we're endlessly debating the question of whether or not it's really possible for someone to be swallowed by a whale and survive. So, you know, group A of Christians, they say like, well, of course, of course it is because the Bible says it. And so that settles it. And then group B is like, well, just that seems a little far-fetched to me. And, you know, does Christianity kind of have to come to grips with science if it's ever going to be a respectable religion in the modern world and there's maybe mythology in the bible you know just around it goes and so around the two sides go um but meanwhile what has been lost to us uh here's what has been lost to us the book of jonah is not about the whale <laughs> focusing on the whale is a massive adventure in missing the point. I mean, we'd be better off almost doing the the Sunday school version of at least talking about the the call to go and obedience and things like that. Um, but I just like, man, we really miss it on the book of Jonah. All right. So what is the book of Jonah? What's it really about? What's the heart of it? Um, so to understand that, we first need to understand some background. We need to understand where the city of Nineveh uh, was found. So Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And the Assyrian Empire was a nation of bloodshed and terror. 
Uh, and they were also one of the most powerful empires of the ancient world. And so in the year 732 BC, uh, so about 700 years or so before Christ, um, they, they basically sieged the, the Israelite um, capital. At that time, it was Samaria. And then they conquered the northern half of the Jewish people known as, as kind of collectively as Israel. You kind of had Judah down south and then Israel up north. Uh, and, and let me tell you, when the Assyrians conquered anyone, like they, they weren't polite about it. Uh, and we don't know the exact horrors that Israel faced. They don't, the Bible doesn't give us like tons of details. Um, but we can kind of guess, and, and we know this, um, some of it's, a lot of it, I should say, is from archaeology, from inscriptions, carvings from around that time concerning the practices of Assyria. Here's an image, uh, the Assyrians themselves created of the tortures they put people through, conquered peoples. Um, I think Scott's going to go ahead and put that up. So it's it's basically, you can see kind of there at the top, it's kind of someone maybe uh, plucking out a beard. Um, and that's about the best of it. Someone else is getting their tongue torn out. Um, it was, I mean, it's it's not, not good. Uh, further archaeological evidence can be seen from an inscription. This is from a temple in the Assyrian city of Nimrod that recounts, the, they basically recounted the fate of some leaders from um, the city uh, this was another city they conquered. I think it was called Sur. Um, they said that Sur rebelled against the empire. And so Assyria came and put um, them to death. So um, and what, you, what I want you to notice is this is actually, um, this is Assyria who put these exploits in their own temple. So we got this inscription from the Assyrians themselves. I mean, they're basically bragging. So this is, he says this, I, King Ashurbanipal, the, the Assyrian king, I built a pillar at the city gate and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up inside the pillar. Some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. Uh, these, these were brutal, brutal people. Uh, and here's, this is actually a passage from the, the Bible. This is the prophetic book of Nahum uh, chapter three. And um, there's a, a lot of chapters have kind of a little title over the top, and this is titled, Woe to Nineveh, because uh, the book of Jonah isn't the only uh, mention of them in the Bible. So this is Nahum chapter three, woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims, the crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead bodies without number, people stumbling over corpses. So, so this is what the book of Jonah is about. And, and it's why when God shows up and says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach against it. Jonah says, no. Now, you might think, well, you're preaching against it. That's, you should enjoy that. But no, because where there is preaching, there is warning. And where there is warning, there is the possibility of repentance, of of change, of transformation, and Jonah doesn't want those possibilities for Assyria. You know what Jonah wants? Revenge. He wants death and judgment because that's what they deserved. He, he wants God to wipe them out. Here's the ending uh, of the story from the very end of chapter three, and then we go into chapter four of the book of Jonah. 
Um, so this is the last verse that, um, that Nancy read. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, right? Because they repented. This is that's what happened. Uh, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Then we go into chapter four. This is the very next verse, chapter four, verse one. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry and he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew I knew that you are, listen to this language, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. It is better for me to die than to live. Verse four, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? And then skipping down to verse 11, God continues. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? And that's literally how the book ends. with this hanging question, should I not have concern for them, Jonah? Because of course, the book of Jonah is not simply about some guy who lived a while back. And it's certainly not primarily about a whale. Instead, it is about us and God and our response to those we call enemy, to those we call oppressor, to those who have mistreated and betrayed us. Oh, the wonderful grace of God. Wonderful when it is shown to those we love. Oh, the terrible grace of God. Terrible when it is shown to those we hate. You know, make no mistake about it. Um, this is the wisdom and the scandal of the book of Jonah. And honestly, it is to the Jewish people's credit that they included this book in their holy scriptures. It's, I mean, it's completely remarkable uh, that this made it in. It really is the wisdom and the scandal of the book of Jonah. Uh, and it's, it's a picture of the wisdom and the scandal of the Christian faith uh, as well. And you say, well, what do you mean Christian faith? How do we go from book of Jonah to like New Testament Christianity? Um, I, I mean, it's the cross, right? I'm thinking of the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, let me unpack this. So um, here's the thing. In a concrete moment or season of history, you can kind of zoom in and you can see um, like, oh, oh, look at that. Uh, we have a pretty dang clear oppressor and someone oppressed. We have the righteous and the wicked, right? Just think of Jonah with Israel, Assyria, the empire conquering another. I mean, it's awful, right? So it's you zoom in enough and there you have it, oppressor oppressed. Um, but here's the thing. If you zoom out enough, if you allow enough time to pass in a person or a tribe's life, 
the categories suddenly what happens they they become rather blurry <laughs> and you realize that as Fleming Rutledge says uh, the line of good and evil cuts right through the heart of every human being this is really the scandal that Jonah did not understand and and it's the wisdom and the scandal of the cross because to the question uh, who crucified the innocent son of God, the answer is, of course, not, oh, those people, those bad people over there. <laughs> what's, the, what's the answer? Everyone. And, and the Gospels uh, make this very clear. It's the Gentile Roman politicians. Uh, it's the Jewish religious leaders. And it's the nameless, faceless mob. Representing, of course, who? All of us. And, and in the story, if you've ever read the Gospels around the crucifixion of Jesus, you'll remember the, the, the point where the, the mob is shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. Right? And, and this was Paul's, the Apostle Paul's insight in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, when he's naming what the cross of Jesus reveals. What, what did it show? This is what Paul says, Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. What, what is righteous? That means righteousness is about relationship. There's no one right, right with themselves, right with God, right with other people. No one righteous, not even one. Uh, and you might say, this is the bad news of the cross. I mean, who put Jesus on the cross? I did. We did. Like those people and my people, those tribes and my tribe, the same evil in them is in who? In me. The same shadow side in them is in me. As Paul reiterates later in Romans chapter 11, verse 32, he says that the cross of Jesus shows that God has bound everyone over to disobedience. <laughs> and you might be thinking to yourself, like, well, this is kind of offensive because I'm a good person. <laughs> well, be honest now, are you? I mean, I'm sure you have beautiful moments. Uh, like, I'm not someone who says, you know, humans are only terrible. Uh, I'm sure there are times where you really are, like, loving and good. Uh, but isn't that darkness in you too? Isn't that rage? that envy, that greed, that capacity for hate and violence, even if you don't let it out, <laughs> like you do all you can to kind of keep it suppressed because you're, you know, Christian. <laughs> but isn't that lurking in you too? It's lurking in me. So, so then you might say, well, okay, I may not be perfect, but my tribe, my people, we are the good people. Our intentions are pure. We see clearly and we act righteously. It is the rest of the world, those other tribes, those other religions, those other cultures, those other political parties, they, they have the problem. Really? So I'm sorry, but I'm with Paul and Jesus on this one. Um, God has bound everyone over to disobedience. 
it's in all of us. The line of good and evil cuts right through the heart of all of us. That's the bad news. Uh, but it doesn't end there. Back to Romans 11.32. Paul says, For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So that he may have mercy on them all. You see, the cross of Jesus, just like the book of Jonah, is terrible and beautiful. Terrible because it cuts right through all of our BS. This is why I'm a Christian, by the way. Like, because I just, it just, it just exposes me in my soul. <laughs> I mean, that's what the cross does, right? It just cuts right through all of our BS and our lies and our self-aggrandizement and our presumption of us and our tribe's innocence. And it says, no, no stop with the charade. <laughs> you are guilty. That's why it's, it's terrible, so to speak, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Because it is also God in Christ saying, I, remember Jonah's words, I am gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, abounding in forgiveness, abounding in healing and reconciliation. And I have chosen to have mercy on everyone. This is God's message. I, I am saving everyone. That's the invitation is to everyone. Not, not just your church or your little tribe or your family or your kind of people. I am transforming the world, God says, through suffering love. That was God's word to Jonah. That was God's word to all of us in the cross. It's the same word. And that's why they call it gospel, which means good news. It's good news. It's good news for everyone, for all people. So I was reflecting this week on, you know, what, what does this mean for us? In other words, how, how do we live differently um, tomorrow, you know, in light of, of these ideas? Uh, and it brought to mind a, a passage. Uh, this is also from Paul. And it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. And I see it very deeply tied to the themes of the book of Jonah, to the themes of the passages we just read in um, Romans, and into the cross. So 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19, Paul says this, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Again, that's right, cross and resurrection. He reconciled us to himself through Christ. And then what did he do? And he gave us the ministry of what? Of reconciliation. Can you see it? God reconciles us to himself. But it doesn't just stop there. It's not just, oh, good. Well, I'm saved. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. <laughs> what, what is, why? He, he reconciles us and then he commissions us. He gives us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19 clarifies a little bit that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message, the ministry of reconciliation. What, what does reconciliation in this relational sense mean? Reconciliation means healed, 
restored, right relationship. You see, this is, this is really the great problem of our world. We are fractured, broken, disjointed in our relationship to God, to ourselves, and to other people. Uh, and I'll leave the connection to God and ourselves for other sermons. Um, let's talk about our relationship with others. Can anyone look at our world the last few months, or heck, the last few years, and doubt that we have broken relationships all around us? I mean, we are a mess. And so this, this begs the question, what is our call? What is your call? Well, assuming that you follow Jesus, then you have a double mission. Do you know you have a double mission in your life? Like you don't just have one thing you do. You have always two things. See, one mission is whatever you do each day. And it's important that whatever you do, you do as well as you can, right? Whether you are a mother or a computer programmer, a teacher, a grandparent, a realtor, an event coordinator, I don't know, all sorts of things people do, right? That's one mission, um, but don't be confused. You have a second mission. You have an agenda with everyone you interact with. And here is your agenda, reconciliation. Reconciliation. Everywhere you look, there is brokenness and strife and anger and reactionary living. Right? This is our mission at the table, to shift a generation from reactionary brokenness, right? from reactionary to visionary through the person and work of Jesus. Why? Because everywhere we look, there is brokenness, strife, anger, and reactionary living. So-and-so is hacked off at so-and-so. This tribe is against that tribe. But as a citizen of the kingdom of God, as a follower of Christ, you go into the world, you are present, and you are constantly asking yourself and God, Lord, how? How can I be an agent of reconciliation here? That's your prayer. That's the question. How can I be an agent of reconciliation here? What would it look like for me to sow seeds of love, forgiveness, and peace in this moment? And I'll be really honest, um, this is a high calling, and it is one I struggle with mightily. Um, but sometimes, maybe 5% of the time, I get it right. And so at the, I run a great risk tonight of tooting my own horn. Hopefully, you all know me well enough by now to know I am completely willing to share my failures. Um, I do that quite a bit in my sermons. Tonight, let me share one success I had. Um, I really debated whether to share this, so be gentle. Um, especially the first part of this text could sound very self-congratulatory. So a few months ago, I received a text from a coworker. So I worked from uh, the month of February of this past year through like early October um, at a marketing agency in Dallas as a part-time project manager. That was kind of my background when I worked in the corporate world was project management. Uh, and so I kind of went back into that um, skills to pay the bills, you know. And so, um, so I was doing that and there was, um, it was a great experience. It was good to be kind of out of the church world and, and back in with um, just, you know, normal folks. It was great. Um, 
and I worked with some really lovely people. Um, but I did, I had a, a connection, a friendship with someone. And, you know, we got off to a little bit of a rocky start when, when she, she came on just a little bit after me. And um, she had some, she was, she's a very straightforward person. And she had some kind of criticisms, basically, of how I was kind of running things. Um, and uh, and we, we had to work them through. And it never got ugly or anything. But it was, you know, we had to work it through. And I did my best uh, with it. Why? Because I knew I was there with a double mission. They also knew I was a pastor part-time and a Christian. You know what I mean? Like it was, <laughs> it, I wasn't hiding anything. And I just, and honestly, even apart from that, like I really wanted to, I wanted to live this stuff, you know, like I, I wanted to um, make an impact and in a positive way. And so um, the day after my time at that company, um, came to an end. It was supposed to be only six months, kind of where I was a contractor, and then it went a little longer because of COVID. Um, but eventually, that came to a close, and so I get home that evening, and I received this text from her. Uh, her name was Andrea. She said, "Hey Brett, I just want to say thank you so much for all your amazing work and your work ethic. You're seriously a great project manager. By the way, she's being very kind. I am a very mediocre project manager." All right, said, your attitude, your energy is so pure and amazing. And then this is the part. She said, it was absolutely awesome to have you as a coworker and to work with you. Thanks for always being so kind to me. Thanks for always being so kind to me. Wishing you and your family the best. And that line, thanks for always being so kind to me, um, that got me. I mean, I just sat there on our little bench in my living room. I just started like, Quietly, it wasn't boohooing, but you know, the tears <laughs> rolled down my face. And here's why because that was my prayer every morning that I walked through those office doors. I wanted to be an agent of kindness, of goodness, of reconciliation, because that's what it means to be a Christian. And again, Lord knows I fail at that way too often, but at least this one time I got it right. And so, church, uh, this is our mission. Let's, let's not be like Jonah offended at the wonderful, terrible grace of God. Let's be like Christ, agents, ambassadors of the kingdom of God, bringing love and kindness, forgiveness and reconciliation everywhere we go, embodying, living and extending the wonderful grace of God to all people. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, I... I ask God for the grace over all of us to be able to live this out. God, it is a high, high calling. So I ask first off, God, that this truth of, of the love and grace that you've shown us, the, the reconciliation, the, the way you extended your arms on that cross and communicated how far you're willing to go to, to love us, to um, forgive us to be healed and reconciled with us, God. Thank you for that. And maybe you're listening to my words right now, and you've never—it's never really sunk in quite the depths to which God went to um, restore relationship with you. And I want you to know that He did that for you. But it doesn't end there. God, you've now called us to be agents to be ambassadors of your kingdom, 
God to be, to have an agenda, an agenda of love and reconciliation everywhere we go. And so God, would you do that work in us? Would that truth seep into our bones? And may we go wherever we go, God, whether it's an interaction with our family tonight um, or going into work um, tomorrow, grocery shopping, the, the interaction with the waiter, the waitress, the bank teller, God, whatever it looks like. God, may we be agents of peace, of kindness, of courage, of justice, of reconciliation. God, that's our prayer. In the powerful, life-changing name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.